Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I'd like to go through the uh, 20 pages from the back forward again, at least on the exhibits. Got a couple of things that came up this week on the price of oil. And the key here is we need to have the demand that, that is shown in 23 and 24. For those without the access to the 20 pages, total oil and other liquids demand in 22 uh, was 99.4 million barrels. It's supposed to be 100.9, which would be up by one and a half, and then up another 1.2 million barrels in 24. What everyone quotes, of course, is China reopening out of the 99.4 last year, China was 15.2, and China's supposed to go up by 700,000 barrels this year with the removal of the lockdown, and then about 400,000 barrels next year in 24. So that is very, very, very important. Everyone quotes India since I think India's population just supplanted, just surpassed China. But however you measure economy in India, it's about a third of China's. And in fact, oil consumption is about a third too, where China's used 15 point, or consumed 15.2. Uh, last year, India was 5 million barrels. And India's supposed to go up 200,000 barrels this year and 400,000 barrels next year. Other Asia, away from India and China, is around 12 and a half last year, and it's supposed to go up a little bit each year. Interestingly enough, the Middle East is 9.2, and again, it's supposed to go up by about 200,000. But those demand increases are really necessary because there is at least 3 million barrels of surplus capacity. And the decision by OPEC Plus to reduce production by a million and a half barrels, that was because they were they are concerned about the consumption and wanted to keep the price of oil up. It was a defensive move rather than offensive move, I think. Here's an interesting phenomenon. If you look at the U.S., U.S. consumes more oil than anyone else. Last year, 20.3 million barrels. The U.S. grows very little. Europe is around 14 million barrels, and Europe doesn't grow at all. Japan is around 3.3 million barrels, and it doesn't grow. So the developed world is not going to grow. Any growth in demand for oil and other liquid fuels is going to come from China, India, the rest of Asia, and the Middle East. So hopefully, 
these demand numbers will work out and oil will continue to trade, you know, WTI in the 75 to 80 range, even though there's about 3 million barrels of extra capacity. If you assign a probability to that outcome, I think you call it 50-50. So to the extent you own a stock that produces oil, I'd hang in there uh, as long as the economics are good. The economics are good if there's free cash flow and growth in production. You turn to paragraph B, excuse me, exhibit B, gas is worrisome because here from a supply point of view, the supply is way higher than anyone predicted. For the year to date, in other words, through the first week of April, production is up 5 billion cubic feet per day. And what we need to see is some kind of flattening in the growth of production because of low prices. And the price last year averaged $6, up from $370 and $21, and up from $220 and $20. This year, uh, based on the futures curve for the rest of the year, it's $280. And it, I think that $280 will be hard to hold. And the reason is that total supply, including export imports from Canada, is just under 106 billion cubic feet a day, and demand's only 102. So that's just an impossibly large surplus. But if you look back to 2020, when the price reached 220, and of course it was the first COVID year, gas production still went up in 20 versus 19, but that's because of the wells drilled in 19. It Here's the worrisome thing. It also went up a little in 21, which is kind of a surprise, and then has come up strongly in 22. So 20 was 89.9, 21 was 90.3, and 22 is 95.5. Uh, this is a worrisome thing because the only increase is LNG exports, which are running at around 15, well, about 14 of capacity, and that capacity only comes on at the rate of about 2 billion cubic feet per day. So it's a little, a, a little, a little nervous out there in the uh, in the natural gas market. The futures price is like 350 for 24 and four dollars for 25. I wish I could say sitting there this afternoon that that forecast has a 50% probability, but I think to say it has a 50% probability, we're going to have to see a slowdown in gas production caused by low prices. Nothing much to say about Exhibit A, which is cash in and cash out in effect of cash flow statement for the federal government, except that it's possible that Kevin McCarthy will be able get a bill passed with only his four-seat majority, which will limit discretionary spending, I think including defense, to a 1% increase each year off the 22 base. That will not be supported by the Biden administration, but I think there's an outside chance that 10 senators will switch and vote for that kind of a bill. Clearly, Manchin and Christian Cinema will, and if they pick up another eight senators, 
they might be able to present the Biden administration with a debt ceiling increase with substantial curtailment of spending. That would be terrific. That'd be terrific for the capital markets. That'd be terrific for us all as taxpayers. But we'll have to see how that looks over the next couple of weeks. With that, I'd like to go all the way to uh, the beginning of the 20 pages. And we spent a lot of time on Michael and Jason, huge contributions, maybe not so much talking about AI. But the thing I'd like to turn over to uh, Mike and Jason, there's some recent articles, including one in the paper this morning, about whether the people who are building these models need to pay for the content that's going into the models. Mike and I talked a little bit about that this morning, so we're kind of rehearsed. So rather than hear from Mike and Hunter rehearsed, let's ask Jason what he thinks is going to develop there, or is this material that's out there, Wikipedia, Reddit, whatnot, is just available for everyone and someone building language models out of it, it should, you know, it should be free. What, what do you think, Jason? Yeah. Well, the way I think about it is, is why would we treat, you know, copyright law differently towards a computer than towards we than we do towards people, but specifically in, in Reddit's case and, and Twitter went through this in the past and it's, if computers are just mining data on those systems, it's really up to those companies to say that, that is allowed on their system or not, you know, it's in their terms of use. So uh, everyone that has an account and the computers have to have accounts to do this kind of thing. It's, it's, are they violating the terms of use of that system or not? But more broadly, if these are, you know, just images or text available on the internet, Mike and I were talking about it a little earlier. It's, 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 why are we, why are we defining a different set of laws and rules for computers versus people? And, and that's kind of what I always go back to on this. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mike? Well, I think pulling on that thread farther, we have a pretty robust set of case law. It's the application that's different. And I guess it probably boils down to the fair use determination, which there's four factors that I, my understanding is, caveat that I'm not a lawyer, I'm just married to one. So the four factors that judges consider are the purpose and character of your use, um, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion taken, and the effect upon the potential market. So all that is to say is that a judge has quite a bit of leeway in making that determination. So I think any of these lawsuits could go one way or the other. Handicapping the odds is going to be very difficult. Yeah, I, I w- there's some case law established that's that's pretty old. In in 1919, I guess an artist had taken a replica of the Mona Lisa and and just drew a mustache on her, and it was that was challenged and and found to be that's a derivative work. So he was allowed to market that and and show it in galleries without violating, you know, any copyright held by by anyone else. So. I think it's a pretty low bar to, to set at least in images to say, you know, what you've done is a derivative work. And, and there's a lot of questions to be answered is where do we draw the line between copying and derivative work? And, and should an AI even be allowed to look at copyrighted material for training? And, and that's a question I think that really is what we need to answer. Jason, Jason, what about Getty images? 
as an example of, I mean, could you, should you be able to use those, that collection of photographs? Yeah, I mean, they, they published that ready. as, right, they, they put it out there as, as free-to-use images, I believe. So you just have to, to cite them as if you're using that exact image. But, you know, if, if a person looked at a set of Getty images and then drew their own creation you wouldn't say that is, is violating, you know, violating their copyrights on those images. So, you know, and, and, and something I was thinking about earlier today was maybe it goes back to the, uh, the level of effort put in to, to generate the, the art or the image or, or whatever it is you're creating. You know, if I was, if I was a, as a person and if I go spend my time and effort and labor to paint something like, like Mickey Mouse riding a snowboard, people might say, you know, question my sanity. I don't know, but they, but they might also say it's, it's a great work. But if I, I have a computer do that and they, it produces that image in 10 seconds, you know, I might get sued for copyright infringement by Disney, right? It's, it's, it's a total different reaction, even though what you're doing is the same thing. What about a chatbot that uh, does a better job singing New York, New York than Frank? Yeah. That, that goes into the identity and likeness piece, right? And you can essentially create an artificial Frank Sinatra if you want to, or pick any recording artist. Uh, there's an article in the journal today about a famous voice actor that's done a bunch of audiobooks, and they've created a digital version of this guy. So does that put everyone out of, out of work for voiceover or audiobook readers? Not necessarily. You need some level of original content, but it certainly changes the, uh, the game. And then, Jason, you should tell the story about Bruce Willis. Yeah, a, a company he'd, he'd worked with in the past at, at some point last year, he licensed his likeness to them to create an entirely digital, they call it a deep fake, but a, a digital representation of himself that was used in a commercial. So he didn't do any of the acting or voiceover or anything. They just used clips that he'd previously recorded to train their algorithm to then have a Bruce Willis star in a commercial. So he didn't actually have to do any work. He just got a, a royalty fee on his likeness. Right. To move on to whether investments are going to work, stimulated by AI, H3, NVIDIA is very, very expensive. I know this is depressed free cash flow in the $4 billion range, but an enterprise value of $630 billion. That's a hundred. 55 free cash flow. But when you look at the development of, of uh, you know, the open AI, Microsoft uh, relationship, or, you know, Amazon has its own, Apple has its own, Meta has its own, are you, are you put in a position where you simply have to own the video, even though it's too expensive. I guess over to you first, Jason. Yeah, so something's going on in, in the market that we hadn't seen since the crypto boom, which is uh, graphics cards being sold on eBay for many times its retail cost. So now, instead of crypto mining, these are specifically for training large language models. These are These are definitely the cards used to to build training clusters. And, and you can't, I, I think I mentioned last week, you can't 
you can't rent these computers on on AWS or, or those hyperscaler clouds right now. They're just all the all their uses are taken up by other customers. So at some level, it's it's you're missing out if you don't own Nvidia. They they're the supplier of the pick and shovel for for this big trend right now. But you should, I mean, we have to point out the fact that anytime that there's this much interest in one area, others are going to develop alternatives because there's enough profit potential there. NVIDIA has got such a large head start. We think they're in a pretty good position, mm-hmm. but it's hard to get around the, the low levels of free cash flow at the current valuation. And clearly we're in a, in a hype cycle and we're at, we're at the top of it. So when the steam comes out a little bit, it's, you know, will we'll sales decline? They, they won't keep up the pace they, they have been, I don't, I don't believe. Or the, the valuation just catches up to itself at some point, too. Right. Well, AMD has about the same amount of free cash flow. And enterprise value is 150 rather than 600. So the ratio is 35 times. But AMD is basically a later entrant making GPUs other than owning both of them. How do you, how do you pick between those two? A much lower valuation, but much less GPU capability. Yeah, I, mean, I think you have to buy AMD on their, their server CPU usage. Yeah, not the GPU. Right. right. The, looking at you know the the algor- the, uh, the models people use to train their their AI algorithms. There's been a lot of talk that they'll port them over to being, you know, not reliant on NVIDIA. But in practice, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen that happen, right? The, the, the pace of innovation is so great that no one's taking the time to go back and say, uh, I'll make this work on another GPU. It's just everyone's pushing forward to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. AMD also has the threat of the shift to ARM-based servers versus x86. And you have Intel, which we've, Spent plenty of time bashing on this call, but I should point out that Intel actually has driven all of the recent innovations that are used by Taiwan Semiconductor. In general, they've invented them all, and Taiwan Semiconductor sort of copied them. So it's just to remind everybody that Intel is a well capitalized and highly motivated player that is behind and they're going to do everything they can to catch up from an investment perspective it looks not great but there's a lot of very smart people there that are going to try to figure out how to make it work how hard would it be for intel within 12 or 18 months to match nvidia's gpu capability it's not nvidia's gpu capability that is the problem. For, for example, if Amazon says, and they are working with Intel, for example, they're also working with AMD. If Amazon, Amazon says, we're planning to support this much, you know, we, we're planning to support a lot of inference. And these are the models that we expect those inferences, this inference needs to be run on. Let's build some custom chips in order to do it. They could do it in-house. They could go to Intel and say, hey, let's work with you to develop this. And it can be Intel Silicon or Intel Foundry created silicon. So there's plenty of paths for for them to work together. But the only time that that really makes sense is when 
the scale of production is so big that it's worth it to cut NVIDIA out. For everybody else, there's NVIDIA. And that's because NVIDIA has the software development infrastructure, the software behind the GPU that you need in order to make it really you know, build your software. Until the scale of the problem is so big, it doesn't make sense to try to minimize those costs. It's just worth it to pay for NVIDIA. What about, I, I focus on these plus time on semiconductor, but you people cover many more chip stocks and, and, and also the equipment companies, the SMLs and, and et al. Where else is there opportunity for people to try to develop uh, the same kind of GPU capacity or capability that NVIDIA has? So it's mostly startups right now. And generally what these startups have done is, this is a little bit of a simplification, but they've, they've taken one part of the process of building an artificial intelligence model and running it, taken one segment of it and said, we can build something specialized for that. This way, way better. And they, they do it, they produce a proof of concept and they raise, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars showing that they can do it. And then it's a struggle to find the customers that actually want that because there's only a few of them. It's Google, it's Amazon, it's Microsoft. So from a competitive strategy perspective, like that doesn't seem like a great market to try to go after NVIDIA. I, I think that more interesting other parts of the semiconductor market are what are the things that are feeding into these models And I think one of the pieces of this that's had a bunch of false starts in the last decade, call it, is um, Internet of Things. We've seen a proliferation of devices, whether that's cell phones and watches, and now you have refrigerators and microwaves that are Internet connected and door cameras and all that kind of stuff. But I think that pace is going to continue. So the chip designs for all of that are going to be done by somebody. Broadcom licensed a big chunk of their portfolio to a company called Synaptics. That that one I think is fairly interesting. And then, you know, ARM is going to ARM is going to be a big player in that space. So that IPO that's supposedly forthcoming, I think could be really interesting too. I don't disagree with Mike. I, I think it's more of, you know, maybe analog devices. I think you know, I, th- I think the inference part of these models, not to get too in the weeds, but, you know, it's matrix multiplication. We'll see the inference part of, of these models going towards more of a baked-in chip design. And what I mean by that is, is these models have weightings. A signal comes in, it gets processed through the series of weightings in the model, and then that, the characterization of the output of that signal then says, you know, recognizes a letter or a word or an, a part of an image or, or that kind of thing. So I think once the models are solidified, which will happen at some point, right? Innovation is moving so quickly, but at, at some point we come to a, come to a, a coalescence of, you know, these are the base models that we're using. We'll start baking those models into the chips. And, and then I think those more analog type, you know, we think of them as lower end chip manufacturers. I think they'll end up with a good chunk of this business. Mm. Interesting. How likely are Google and Amazon and Apple to 
develop their own GPUs rather than rely on NVIDIA. Just uh, take, take their designs to Taiwan Semiconductor and, yeah. Yeah, and have TFMC yeah. make them. It's, it's highly likely. They're, they're doing it now. So Google has a whole line of TPUs, tensor processing units, instead of graphical. So it's, it's kind of based, you know, from my understanding, it's loosely based on what a GPU does, but it's, it's focused on AI. So they're, they're doing this already. They have the scale where they need, you know, millions of these chips and, and it's, it, it, pr- pr- it proves cost effective for them to design them themselves, source them themselves, um, and they can make them optimized for their specific uses. So that that's certainly a threat to to Nvidia. Right. And can TSMC do this without ASML to with the with the graphics equipment? No, absolutely not. No. So so they're the source of the those high-end lithography machines and and without those you're not you're not producing some of the more cutting-edge chips. So that that's one of the the single points of failure in the in the semiconductor uh, manufacturing space. Right. Well, Microsoft or uh, Amazon have the capability to package this all up in their cloud offering, so that the customer doesn't have to worry about the picks and shovels. They just deal with Amazon Web Services or Azure. Yeah, and they're and they're starting to do that. Amazon, you know, we 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 don't talk about Amazon too much when lately with all these language models, but in the last week they just released a service, I believe it's called Bedrock, where, where it's just that, you know, you, you, they have a set of base models um, that can be trained for your specific use case. And how you train it is you dump a bunch of files into a, a, an online directory and you point their service at it and say, hey, read all these text files or look at all these images. And it provides the training on your specific data set. And then you can use, you know, think of it like a chat GPT kind of thing. You can use that with the knowledge of your, of your own data set. So the, the Amazon's really, their tool really does appear to make it pretty easy. Um, and they have a long history of, of providing these kind of AI tools that, you know, kind of gets overlooked outside of software development. Any other thoughts, Mike, before we uh, drop off in terms of other ways to be part of the picks and shovels uh, move to uh, enable everyone to to continue AI development at a at a at a frantic pace. Yeah, I think I think we need to keep watching Intel because I, my my projection is that they're going to burn through a bunch of cash the next couple of years. But the best case scenario is they burn through a bunch of cash. <laughs> It's not a great scenario from a business perspective, but it's a good scenario for the rest of the industry, probably. They burn through all this cash, and they do come out as the back on the leading edge, right, ahead of Taiwan Semiconductor by launching their A18 or whatever. And then you have true competition at the leading edge, which will bring the cost down substantially, and that will probably be better for developing new products. If, you know, if they did everything perfectly, the... the you know, which we already know they're behind this initial plan, but the initial plan would have got them um, a year and a half to two years ahead of Taiwan Semiconductor on that, we'll call it two nanometer node, because that's what that's what Taiwan Semiconductor calls it. So it's probably far-fetched that it happens, but we need to follow it because, uh, you know, 
it means a lot for the rest of the industry. It may probably won't mean it's a good investment, but we should be aware of it, especially since we've bashed it so much this year. <laughs> yeah. Right. The surprise right. answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll sign off for this week. Everyone be well and stay healthy and talk next Wednesday. And I think we're going to be talking uh, picks and shovels and AI for at least a few weeks here. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 